Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Freightstar. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Freightstar for sponsoring today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at Freightstar.com. That's F-R numeral eight S-T-A-R dot com. West Union Iowa no-tiller Lauren Steinlogge has progressed through a series of innovations on his farm, including strip-till, interseeding, relay cropping, testing organic no-till, and more. He's a frequent speaker at ag meetings and conferences and says that one of his favorite things to do is just talk shop with other farmers. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, Lauren sat down with Dale Richardson, who no-tills about 500 acres of corn, soybeans, and cover crops just outside of Springfield, Missouri. Dale's become passionate about the soil building potential of cover crops through his many conversations with innovators such as Frey Archuleta, Gabe Brown, and Dave Brandt, among others, and is working on applying the principles he's learned from them when he's not working his off-farm job. Listen in as Lauren and Dale share their perspectives on the Haney soil test, feeding cash crops with nutrients sequestered from covers, seeding rates and plant density, the effects of livestock on soil biology, why you should sneak around in your fields with a flashlight at night, and much more. Hello again, this is uh, Lauren Steinlogge with Flow Low Farms. Sitting here today with Dale Richardson from Missouri. I'll introduce him here quick and let him tell you about his operation. Hi, my name is Dale Richardson. I live west of Springfield, Missouri, about 20 miles. We do corn and beans mainly, and I've done some sunflowers. I would love to do more rotations in my farming operation, but I do corn and beans, and in between that, I try to get covers out, and I love cover crops. I think they're, they're the answer to a lot of our problems, so. On your operation, what would you say has been kind of the key take home that you've learned so far this, doing this approach? Well, we plant green. I think that's a huge benefit to us. And what we've learned so far is let those covers, we like to keep them out there as long as we can. Learned that from Dave Brandt. And I know a lot of guys, they do, I want to say pre-terminate their cover crops, but they they do it uh, for several different reasons. But I don't think really you can let it go long enough in my estimation, because we've done that. We've had to do that because of weather. It's been too wet. So we like to let the covers go as long as we can to get that soil biology as cooking as best we can. But that's what I think is important to your cash crop is let the groundwork be done by those cover crops. And plus you have the cover on the soil. It's just a win-win situation. We, we don't see the lags, uh, the drought. When the droughts come, they are gonna come. It's not if, but they are gonna come. Uh, we've just not seen that too much. I, I just am very impressed with what cover crops offer. People say, do you have a return? I think you can probably see that as time goes on, you know, but right now I just have been doing it, knowing it's good for my soil, I'm sold on them. Early in the learning phase, who was, who was probably one of the key motivators, mentors that you learned from? I'd say Gabe Brown and Dave Brandt. Uh, of course, Ray Archuleta was more of a soil guy, and of course he 
definitely was big on cover crops, but Gay Brown and Dave Brandt, Gail Fuller even, a lot of these guys that I have looked on the internet, there's there's no excuse for having enough information. There's plenty of information out there if you'll just dig on it. And But those guys, watching them, what they were doing, seeing what it was doing to their soil. Of course, Dave Brandt, how he's turned this yellow clay soil into the beautiful soil he has, it's gotta be quite a testament to cover crops. We mentioned uh, the gentleman from North Carolina, uh, Ray Steyer. Ray Steyer. You know, just seeing what you can do. The other guy from the Minokan Farm, uh, Jay, Jay Fuhr. Fuhr, you know, I don't know. I I know I don't have the experience. I don't know. I know I don't have the knowledge, but I think cover crops and cropping, learning to put those together, the way Mother Nature is wanting us to do that. That's our key. I think all the pieces are there. We just got to figure out how to put that puzzle together. And I know there are men that are driving these systems with their soil biology, and that's what my goal is to get away from the synthetics. And I've done, I've done that a lot. I, I don't use much synthetic, I never have. I've done the litter, ton and a half litter, to go through that soil profile, s- slowly go through there. I know it doesn't happen overnight, but that with a, just a little starter here and there, that's about all I've used on, on uh, fertility from outside. Uh, when we did the phone call to get the introduction, you kind of mentioned some unique uh, memories of Ray Archuleta. Would you care to expand upon them a little bit? Well, Ray was uh, a guy that I really watched a lot on these webinars and all the presentations he did. And uh, very intriguing, very sharp, knew his soil. <laughs> Just taught me so many things and shook my mind up. But he came to our area about uh, 25, 30 miles from us in a, a really good a place that's very very flat and good soil. And, and I met him there. I introduced myself to him, and uh, he inadvertently lived just 10 miles from me. And so we hooked up, and that was a great, great experience. And Ray has helped me with some uh, soil testing as far as getting me hooked up with Dr. Haney and uh, which I think is a neat thing, and he showed me why I, he, he was calling me a crack addict on fertilizer. And, of course, he gives me a hard time about that. We've had a lot of fun through the years about that. But in turn, he was correct. He was seeing my corn at about, a I don't know, it was four feet tall. I said, boy, Ray, this corn just needs more fertility. I can tell you it needs more nitrogen. And he said, Dale, that's all you talk about is putting more fertility on and he told me to get some testing done. I did, anyway, it turned out that he told me I had 120 units of inorganic in the soil, I didn't need any more. That, that corn with a ton and a half of litter and cover crops the fall with oats and crimson and several different, about a five-way mix, I believe. We had 150 bushel corn. Now for dryland corn, with a guy that doesn't know what he's doing, I think that's really good because I can tell you this, I do a lot of study. And I know a lot of farmers that are putting 250 units of in out there. And I'm going to tell you, they're putting it down the drain. Because Dr. Haney, one thing he did on his, his website, he has that little meter where it tells you what, you're, what you have the possibilities of doing. And that 250 units, it would be pegged over there where you're, you got to be kidding. I remember that. That was one of the things on there. So I think farmers have been trained by the fertilizer plants and all these people that are in the agricultural business, Gay Brown said, I'm tired of signing the front of the check. I want to start signing the back of the check. That stuck with me. 
And so we've been trying to, you know, get that away. Ray's, Ray's been helpful, and actually Ray gets upset with me, and he, he gives me a hard time <laughs> and tells me, hey, write me the check because you're just going to throw it away. That's been good for me. When you, when you talk about the Haney test and that, what uh, actual results are you seeing? I mean, when you're when you're cutting back your nitrogen from the Haney, what are you what are you seeing? Well, I've been inconsistent with doing it every year, but when I have done them, I have you know they give you a score on your soil, and my score was getting better, you know, and that's because of cover cropping. That's all it is. It's because of the soil activity, and that's what's good about the Haney test is, you know, he said, you take it to the university, it's all a dry test, but you don't have a dry soil, you have a wet soil. And so I don't know how you feel about that, Lauren, but I think that makes common sense to use what's active, what's actually going on in your soil right then. So I have seen that get better, but I've been inconsistent with it. So I don't want to hang my hat on. Well, I'd say one of the biggest, you know, we, we've been involved pretty heavy with the Haney the last two years. And original plan was we were going to be pulling weekly samples. Well, Mother Nature's kind of played with us there a little bit. So they ended up being monthly samples. But, uh, you know, I think there's, you know, there, there's people out there trying to help figure out the rhyme and reason to the whole nitrogen use curve. And, you know, having a good read on it is going to be key. You know, moving forward, I think we need to figure out, you know, what that test is actually telling us in real time. Well, what I'm seeing is that what they're finding out is they're actually these, even your grasses are pulling nitrogen from the air. And I think we're just, I just haven't put a lot of fertilizer on my crops. So my crops aren't hooked on that already. Mm Mm-hmm out of tightness, just too tight. And I've just tried to let the cover crops drive my machine. And I'm not doing well, but when you talk to other people, I'm getting the same, same that they are getting. And I, I remember a test that I saw from the universities early on, I've never forgot it. And you may know about it, Lauren, but they did in 1910, 05, somewhere, they did wheat samples. 40 units of, of N for 40 bushel wheat. 45 units of N for 40 bushel wheat. 80 units of N, 45 bushels of wheat. It never, it didn't make one bit of sense. And that's what, with the Haney test, you gotta be kidding. Your soil only can handle what it's prepared to handle biologically, makes total sense. So all these billions of dollars that we spend on fertilizer every year, how much are they really doing? any good that's just my questions i don't have the answer no that's you know we, we've got the little organic test plot that we've been playing with the last two years and i'm seeing things that are making me scratch my head you know when, when you take something all the way to zero and write it out and see how long it can go and then all of a sudden you see fairy rings and stuff like that popping up and then all of a sudden the whole them fairy rings getting bigger and bigger and bigger Where's it coming from? Well, what I'm hearing from the organic side, and that's what intrigued me with the Rick Clarks, talking to him, what's going on at his place, and I have a Mennonite that is organic conventionally, but he said zero treatments. They won't allow you. But we're seeing our soils getting better from stopping these treatments that we're adding to this seed. And so all my non-GMO seeds already bought and paid for, they are non-treated. And if I need to go warmer, if I need to go longer, I've got the cover crop to fall back on. That's what I'm planning on doing, Lauren. It's scary, 
But you know what? All this stuff is really not as scary as you think it is. We just we just are told it's scary, but it really it's not that scary. Well, the one one way I describe it is, you know, some of this as you get exposed to some of this, you just start to get numb, yep. and maybe the numbness is starting to catch on. <laughs> you know what Rick Clark says: if you're not trying something different, you're on the truck. Yep, you gotta try something different. Get out of the box. When it comes to your soils, how are you quantifying what you're seeing for changes? That's a hard question because normally we go by yield, but that's a misnomer because well, how much rain do you get? What field is it? What slope is it? So when everybody tells me about what kind of yields they get, what is it? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I don't know about what, well, this number here is the greatest number ever. Well, in that test for that field, that rainfall or whatever. So how do I go, how do I determine? I don't know if I have a good answer for that, Lauren, because I'm not a major data guy, because I'm not that big, about four five hundred acres, you know, so I probably confessing some sin here that I'm not doing a lot of data. I'm just going with what I see. But above my, ground, below ground, what what are you seeing, I guess? Well, uh, above ground, uh, I definitely see the results with my plants. I, my plants are good color, you know, without the fertility. Below ground, like I said earlier, when I pulled up an annual ryegrass plant with the clover, it was looked like I'd taken a shotgun with the wormholes in it. As I was seeing, I didn't understand, but I saw a lot of brown on those roots. Mm-hmm. Well, that's your exudates. You know, that's how you that's how you build soil. So that's that was my first year. So I didn't have to see a lot, but you know, I do. I work off the farm, so I don't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And when I, I so I don't do a lot of stuff that I probably should be doing. Uh, I do some digging. Don't like to do a lot of digging because I don't want to hurt my soil. Isn't that silly? Yeah, but that's how bad I am. I'm, I've got to the point where we don't do root pits anymore, <laughs> but uh, you know, and that, that's just from you know, I've got my pet root pit that we did. Well, Jill Clapperton was there in 2016. Yep, and to this day, that's the only place I got water standing on my home farm. Wow, that soil collapsed eight inches. Really? Yeah. Now, on your soils, do you have heavy enough soils to have water standing? Yeah. Yeah, we we would normally, you know, you got to remember, Iowa was once a swamp, you know, so we're all pattern tiled and all that stuff. And I mean, the original reason I got involved with cover crops was because most of our tile lines are too far apart. You know, so I figured if I could increase the infiltration and water holding capacity, that's where I wanted to start. You know, but now we've built the infiltration and water holding capacity to the point where we're back to having side hill seeps and stuff like that. Through... Cover cropping strictly through radishes, through well, I mean, our, we're in the rolling hills, so I mean, the water's infiltrating and coming out the side hill. <laughs> you know, and Dave Brantz this spring when I was there for his field day, we were the going joke was we were going to have a tiling demonstration afterwards because Dave Brant is seeing the same exact thing. You know, he's built the water infiltration and holding capacity to the point where now. We're starting to have surplus moisture. You know, my my option is, I you know, instead of going the next step, I want to do it with crops, and that's why I'm trying to figure out how to do the perennial cover crops, keep more plants and roots in the soil all the time. You know, if we can figure out how to grow the moisture out versus drain it out, mm-hmm. ultimately that's where I want to be. But what do you foresee changing yet or adding to your operation or practices your 
looking for right well, that's what i'm excited about that's what i want to talk about because i i've even on my place my soil is heavy i thought about doing strips you know like a 10-foot span going across uh, my, my my i'm going from south to north my slope is mm-hmm. and go across that and have a 10-foot strip you know every 30 30 foot wide just put a put a buffer in there have some uh, biologicals in there with some flowering stuff you know somehow to slow the water down i've got a big embankment at the end of my place where the highway comes around a big old 15 feet it's actually their problem but i think it's keep making me have such a bad drainage problem mm-hmm. but i thought about doing that but this year what we plan on doing we've already got it started in is i've got some cereals in uh I'll be going to beans on some of that cereal ground and I'd like to do something like the buckwheat, if it's permissible to do some uh, companion cropping. I don't know if you'd call it companion cropping, but uh, interseeding, I should say. And then on my corn ground, I do want to try the uh, cowpea thing, get the corn going. I've also thought about balanza clover, something to help feed the corn. I want to try to get to where I feed my crops, my cash crops, the whole, I am so excited about that, but there is so much to learn and there's so many mistakes to make. I'm just gonna be making a lot of mistakes and I'm not a very good mistake maker. I don't yep. like that. I like perfection. It's hard for a guy that's a perfectionist to do that. Well, so sometimes the mistakes are where you really learn stuff. And I mean, I you, brought, you brought buckwheat up and then you know, a lot of people are worried buckwheat's gonna become a weed, but goes back to you know we, we've intentionally been doing if we get the right window we'll throw buckwheat in with our soybeans for a triple crop after cereal rye but now we're starting to see the buckwheat come back in most of our soybean fields and you know the first time i seen that i called my processor and i said hey are you worried about buckwheat and the beans he's like now nah, that's easy to blow out you know so it's like hey well let's let it roll and you know next thing we know we had sweat bees on all our soybeans you know and you know had a few organic guys that we were talking with and they're like oh that's a good sign you know the sweat bees eat soybean aphid larvae eggs and all that stuff so we're like yeah well let's let's watch this you know and my neighbors they're they're spraying for aphids and all that and we didn't do a thing you know they're spraying fungicide we didn't do a thing and you know, I know our beans were planted the same day as they were. You know, they threw the kitchen sink at it. They harvested a f- full 30 days sooner than we did because my beans didn't want to die. Now, I know pretty well the fact, you know, them were conventional beans. So, hey, why did why was our plant health so much better when they had all the insecticide and fungicide and all, all that on it? It's one of those inquiring mind deals, you know, Pay attention to what's going on out there, and when you see these little things, make note of them and learn from them. Yay Brown says there are no mistakes. Yeah. They're learning experiences. We'll get back to Lauren and Dale in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for supporting today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at freightstar.com. That's F-R numeral eight, S-T-A-R.com. Now let's get back to Lauren Steinlage and Dale Richardson as they talk about growing corn after cereal rye. 
something else I've learned that I want to talk about. There's a lot of guys out there that have been told this. I don't buy it. I've got too much corn in CRI to prove it wrong. It's not the allopathic effect on it. It's just using nitrogen. It's just using nitrogen. So bump your nitrogen up a little bit at planting. You know, put four units on there. Get you through that spell. But I'd rather have the CRI and what it does for my soil than worry about because I've never had a I've never had a problem with that being planted into CRI. I don't know about you, but I've never had a problem. No, I mean, I always tell everybody we backed into CRI. You know, back in the 80s, we used to use a lot of it for forage crop. And, you know, when we were still milking and that, that was a good forage crop. But then we we got away from it. And, you know, we were continuous corn on corn once the alfalfa left and stuff like that. So it, we kind of ruled all that out. You know, in 06, when I started... Uh, when I started playing with the interseeding cover crops, you know, that was my attempt to bring diversity in. And uh, once we started seeing what the diversity could do for us, then it's like, well, okay, let's bring soybeans in. Well, straight soybeans won't cash flow against corn for us. You know, so to make the land rent, we had to start getting creative. Well, let's see, zero rye work, and then, you know, I started paying attention on the relay cropping, so that's, you know, within two, three years, we started, okay, you know, first, man, I haven't grown zero rye, so we had to do a solid zero rye just to prove we could do it, you know, and then we did the multi-species cover crop after that, and that, that's all great, but you got to remember, corn sets our cash rent, and i got to pay a cash rent, so if I'm going to do something, it's got a cash flow. You know, so that's when we started with relay crop, we started figuring out, okay, if I can do cereal rye and winter wheat and throw the soybeans in there and start paying attention to detail, pretty soon I'm pretty confident, we, you know, we can get full cereal rye yield. We can get the full Beans. soybean yield. Hey, all of a sudden you start adding up that, you know, and then factor in how much cheaper our expenses are doing that. We can blow 200 bushel an acre corn away now. You know, and people look at me funny when I tell them I'm in the heart of the Corn Belt, and I uh, love to get to the point where I can have corn as a rotational crop. Now. Do you so. have a supply for your cereal rye? Cereal rye? We're produce- we've been producing all that ourselves since we started growing it again. Right. And, uh, Do you have a market for it? Everything we produce goes through the cover crop site on the cereal rye. And even the winter wheat, we can make food-grade winter wheat, but most of that goes to the cover crop side. You know, I would. I used to try to sell it myself, but then we, a good friend of mine, he started selling cover crop seed pretty hard, and it's like heck with it. You know, he he rents my grain cleaners all summer right, and right. keeps his guys busy in the grain cleaners. I, you know, sure. I I used to worry about a lot of that, but uh, you know now the malt barley we're working with a malter on that aspect, and uh, now a few other doors are starting to open. I mean. Rumor has it in July 4th, we're going to have our own beer, corn beer. And uh, then we're looking with a buckwheat beer. We're going to take seed buckwheat up to them. They're going to brew a beer out of buckwheat. Really? And uh, it's just some of the neat avenues we're starting to, That's good. you know, some of this is starting to catch on. And yeah. uh, I like corn. They like when you soak it. Yeah. I remember that growing up as a kid. Yeah. They get buzzed on it. They soak a while. So you're getting some corn beer. Yep. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting. You know, yeah. my my neighbor, her son runs a brewery. Last summer, we ended up at the brewery the one night, and uh, he happened to be there. And we sat down, and you know, through through some of the stuff we're doing, 
it's going to be an interesting time to see what all starts to happen. But uh, they're the kind of brewery they'll try anything. So right. And you're, you're not organic though, right? No. Okay. No. Just non-GMO as much as you can. Not non-GMO much as we can. You know, this year we're going to change things up a little bit through some of the testing I want to do. We're actually going to bring Liberty Beans the first time. Good, better, and different. You know, part of that is going to be we're going to try to, we've got clover that we've maintained since 2017 interseed that we're, we had corn in this year and after harvest, the you could still see the nice rows of clover. What drove your corn? Nitrogen. What drove your corn? How much did you add? Uh, we're actually at the point on nitrogen where we're, we're seeing a peak. If I apply more than 120 units of nitrogen, we're losing yield. But on, on that field where we had the clover from 2017, we had two different strategies there. One, we main, produced 40 units of nitrogen with that. The other, we produced 80 units of nitrogen. And that, that's where we went with the in-row rolling concept I've been working on for about four or five years now. The Dawn equipment is going to, underground ag, it's going to come out through underground ag, actually, I guess, that uh, we're going to have an in-row roller called the in-roll. And that's, you know, ultimately, I want to get my version out there a little quicker. But, uh, you know, this is the quick get it to market. What we're doing on the rest of my production acres is when we're interseeding, we're actually rolling the cover crop as we're Bang. interseeding now. Okay. And, uh, you know, that comes down to, you know, when first, when we built the current drill, one of our first mindset was we wanted to start combining passes. Well, my mindset back then was we wanted to combine nitrogen application with our interseed pass. And I quickly learned that that's not a very good option because the timing on interseeding is actually very critical. You know, we've got a big window we can apply nitrogen. You know, so I don't want to slow down the interseeding for right. combining the nitrogen pass, but now, you know, the timing is almost perfect to roll that cover crop. Plus, through some of the other stuff we're doing, I figured out that uh, I don't even really care if we terminate the cover crop at that point. We're getting more of a suppression mindset. Have you have you tried or do you believe that you can drive your cash crop from the previous year's covers going in through winter? Of course, you, I know you've got a lot colder winter. winter. Well, that, yeah, that's, you know, that's some of the testing we're undergoing right now. You know, how much nitrogen can we produce? with a cover crop, you know, some of the mindset, you know, that's part of the instigation behind the 60 inch row stuff that we've played with and stuff like that. You know, we're you now Jack Boyer. I know he's done quite a bit of testing with PFI. You know, he's been part of the 60 inch corn stuff and that he's been more focused on the nitrogen aspect. I was originally focused on the grazing aspect, trying to get my daughters back in the operation. But, uh, you know, I've got this little caveat. I can't be around livestock. Grew up with livestock, but I just, I've learned I can't be around them. I can, due to accident, I had way back, but uh, it's just one of those deals, you know, I thought sheep was going to be the perfect option, but I can't get my daughters convinced that uh, sheep are as cute as cattle. They want cattle, you know. <laughs> it's just some of them life right. choices. Right. So but, are uh, you, you are trying to integrate livestock in your operation eventually i mean for that to all happen i have i've got to step away from the operation doug peterson's huge on cattle of course yeah. he's a cattleman and yeah. I, I was a cattleman for 40 yeah. years and you know that, that goes back to the adaption versus adoption you know gabe's done it with cattle dave's done it without cattle so you know lauren's halfway in between them 
I, I can see the benefit of livestock, but as I told, just said, you know, the minute we brought Calmaner back into operation, it affected our balance. So I can imagine, you know, now, you said it. Gabe's done one thing, worked well. Dave's done one thing, it's worked well without livestock. I just can't buy. You have to have livestock. Not not saying it's not a good no. thing to run those across there, but. There's a lot of people like myself cannot do that. It well, just, but then, you know, the way I look at it, we got free livestock. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've got deer. We've got, you know, craziest crazy. thing I see anymore is when we're harvesting, we got rabbits like crazy. Really? Yeah, and if you ever watch a rabbit, what's, what's it good for? Re-reproducing. Reproducing and pooping. Yeah. I mean, we got slaughter. little rabbit pellets everywhere. And, you know, how, how do you account for that? Right. That's fertility one way or another. It's coming from, you know, I'm sure them rat ain't just stand on our farm. Right. But, uh, you know, the day before we left on this little venture down here, we had 30 deer on our front lawn, if that tells you anything. I understand. And, uh, you know, they, they're not just coming across, they're not walking down the gravel road. I think I know where they're getting fed at. Right. Well, this year, I like to do some cow peas in my corn. I want to, anytime I'm growing corn, I'd like to have some form of legume. I've talked yep. to, I've talked to Gabe Brown early about it. He told me persimmon clover. He's told me red clover, just a mammoth or whatever, you know, common. He's told me different things to, to try. I've actually emailed him this time and told him I was wanting to do and he said it'll work. You know, I think what we're big on is trying something. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to get, I don't know if you need to put two rows you know, in between that 30-inch row, because we do 30-inch corn, you know. Okay. It's going to come back to what you have available. I mean, the re- reason I'm running the twin rows is just for it opens. You know, once we started figuring out what we're doing, having that piece of equipment opens us up for the relay. You know, so that piece of equipment's doing multiple right. things. Right, It's good. You know, but it, it comes down to cost. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeremy Wilson's doing a single row great results you know you, we can't get hooked on the above ground thing we've got to f- get the shovel out and see what the roots are doing below right you know does that plant care that it's eight inches apart or does it care that it's got a lot more space you know it goes back to 2014 when Dave Branch showed up in my place he never seen interseeding you know and all of a sudden you know we were out there and we were talking seeding rates and you know I listened to what everybody else is running for seeding rates well my, my seeding mix this year was nine pounds an acre Total. On interseed. Okay. And, you know, Jeremy Wilson has some good ideals there. It all comes down to plant density. You know, if you're going for grazing aspect, yes, you need to get that biomass up and you're, you know, then you're focusing more on right. the above ground. Right. So right. you need to get the seeding rate up there to get the more biomass. But if you're, if you're going for the soil health aspect and starting to pay attention to below ground, you know, it goes back to 2014. Me and Dave sat out there in the show, and we decided a healthy plant's a lot, a lot better than a stressed by density plant. Mm-hmm. You know, so let that plant thrive and put more right. roots down. All comes down to what's your goal, right? And you know, figuring out your unique situation and demands comes back to adoption versus adoption. You know, are you going to try to recreate what Gabe did on your farm? And right. I always tell everybody the difference between me and Gabe is twenty some inches of moisture. Exactly, that's a big, big deciding big, factor. Huge. And uh, you know, back in, when we were in Australia this winter, one of the neatest things that you know it hit me like a brick. You know, over there they're doing what they call delving. Well, it looks an awful lot like our when we're plowing tile in and stuff like that. You know, so you drag that shank through there, it heaves all the soil. 
well, is that soil ever going to be the same? You know, you just mix that whole soil profile. So, you know, some of the conversations I had there after seeing that, it, you know, that brings us to the succession planning when you start understanding, you know, how plants went from growing on, a, you know, algae on a rock to a forest. Somewhere in between there is where we want to be. And that, you know, traditionally that's your one to one bacterial fungi ratio. Well, now we're starting to find out that you want to probably want to be more to the one to three, one to four range mm. in that. But, you know, that brings us full circle to talking about the perennial cover crops. If we can figure out how to get closer to that perennial, your timbers and your forests, them are perennials, you know, versus the annuals. But if you start going too far, you know, bring them annuals, push the annual side a little more, you right. know, drop the perennials that, you know, used to be able to, you know, if you tilled it, that would bring you a hard reset. So, you know, that's some of the stuff I'm starting to pay attention to now and trying to figure out where we need to be, what we need to be looking at. You know, if you get in some of the conversations, you start figuring out that, uh, you know, what actually triggers a seed to grow. You know, some of that has to do with your bacterial fungi ratio and stuff like that. And, you know, it's as simple as light exposure, stuff like that. All that triggers that, you know, seeds can lay dormant quite a few years. You know, goes to the old example, if you ever busted a foundation up, you know, we've got buildings that were built in the late 1800s, 1900s, early 1900s. First thing you see after you move dirt, buttonweeds pop up. It's like that seed had to lay there dormant for all them years. Boom, the right circumstances, it's going to grow, you know, and start thinking, you know, that, that that's where I'm, I hope I'm not scaring people when I talk this stuff, but that's, you know, that's how we're going to get to the next level, I think. Well, I think the, another scary thought is communications between plants. That is a phenomenal concept. I heard it first from the University of Missouri a professor, and ever since then, I've heard other people talk about it. I don't know if that's the Chris Nichols or Christine Jones. Is yes, probably one of the ones that talks pretty hard with the quorum sensing and stuff yes. like that. You know, I, I seen you know John Kemp the other day talking about the redox and stuff like that. You know, and they're showing how a plant bit here and it shows up all the way across the plant when the EH and stuff like that. Crazy. You know, that's and, crazy. And here we here we think we know what we're doing. So what I did, start out, did, this, did these things, and so I went out in my yard, sprayed a 15-foot by 6-foot wide area, and killed it, and it, it turned brown, and I come home from church one night, and we had a little shower, and I'm out there with a flashlight, and when I walked out there, here's all these little holes, and these little heads went back in. The worms were already eating that trash up on top of that. That was a, you know, that just keep fueling my fire. Mm -hmm. So then I put some corn out, put some beans in with it, put some uh, buckwheat with it, and I put all these different diverse things in there, you know. I just had my own little, oh my gosh, like a kid with a new toy. My wife, you know, just leaves me alone. So I, but I'm out there one day, corn's tasseling, and I don't know in your area, but we got beetles, Japanese beetles. Do you have Japanese yep. beetles? Yeah, we're, we're starting to get more and more of them. And well, but these Japanese beetles, they're out there on the corn. So I'm out there with my, my little plot, my little wannabe plot. 
it's this big old long varmint. He's a he could be on the Star Wars movies they've got now, but he's a wildest looking thing. There's an actual name of the Missouri Department of Conservation. We get their magazine, and he was on the front cover one day. Mm-hmm. Weird name, about like that. What I'm telling you about. You know what he had in his mouth? He had a Japanese beetle. And I thought, this is what they're talking about. For every bad varmint you have out there, there's 1,500 good ones mm-hmm. that are waiting to eat this guy. Just like what's going on in your soil and spitting it out, creating soil biology. So all these things, you just got to keep reading and studying and looking and testing things yourself, and you're mm-hmm. going to learn a lot of stuff. Uh, we've talked about mentors. What advice word do you have for a future young and up-and-comer to hand forward? Well, what I would tell them is, you know, there's a lot of good folk out there that are willing to help. You've got to put the effort in, though. You've got to get off your can and and uh, want to learn something. And these people are very willing to, to share with you what they've learned. I mean, Gabe Brown, I'm in Missouri. Gabe Brown's in North Dakota. He doesn't know me from Adam and just talk to me like I was a, a cousin. You know, I've not had any of these people ever say, I haven't got time for you. I've talked to Adam Daughtery. I've talked to, my vocabulary is not very good, but I've got a lot of names in my head yep. that people have been very kind to me. I would highly suggest that you get people that are like-minded. So that's what I've learned. I thought, this is, I'm telling you on myself, Lauren, but I thought you could spin your way to prosperity, but that's what they want you to think, and that's what you're being fed every day. No. I tell you what, get those cover crops in there, and then start doing the things like you're trying to do. Do some testing. Do some things. I'm going to do some this year. I'm, I'm going to put a little part of my budget. If it's $3,000, you know, I'm going to put some money out there, and I'm going to try some things. But I'm sick that I haven't been trying more things because, you know what, this farm thing turns really slow unless you're doing multiple uh, avenues of revenue. But for me, that one crop, that's a long time till the next year, and I didn't try anything this year. Those are countless, precious days I've, I've wasted myself because I've done some things that are not, not like I'm wanting to go. Well, the, the one key advice I'd often give to people is, you know, you got to get the trust behind you and then pay attention to the guys that uh, are making it work and one, one of the key things I see is, you know, be watching them close enough to, to judge how fast they scale it up. If they're scaling it up in two to three years, you know it's working. The best analogy I've heard is the dart. You know, if they're throwing darts, bypass them. You know, if they're hitting hitting home run right off, the, you know, two, three years in, that's the guy to focus on. But uh, you brought Gabe up, and I respect <laughs> him greatly because when we, when we talk about the community that we've built around cover crops and no-till and all that good stuff. It brings it home when you realize a guy like Gabe Brown, and most of you know my story by now, but uh, first time I see Gabe or Ray or any Dave Brandt, any of them, the first question they ask is, how's Rollin? You know, you, you start thinking about how many people a year do them people meet, and they remember a kid that, how many kids do they meet like that? But they remember him with by name every time, and it, it's just the neat sense of community, and it, it pushes a guy to try to duplicate that. So, mm-hmm. with that, again, thank you. This is Lauren Steinlogie. Thank you all for joining us. 
Thanks to Lauren Steinlage and Dale Richardson for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakeurlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.